All right, ladies and gentlemen, today is the 20th anniversary of Jay-Z releasing his first true classic album. Well, I mean, I guess, you know, well, I mean, reasonable doubt you could call it a classic, but, you know, volume one was kind of, eh. So he had to come back hard with Hard Knock Life, and 20 years later still stands up as one of his greatest albums. And today, throwing it back to my days as a member of the Delaware State Hornet newspaper staff, got my cut-up buddy when we used to crack up jokes on people in the back of the room during meetings when we were supposed to be paying attention. <laughs> so <laughs> pleased to have my buddy Tia, AKA T the gym on the groove line. T what's going on? Hey Chris, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Um, you, um, actually this show was your idea. Cause you hit me this morning, um, reminded me that it was the 20th anniversary of hard knock life. And I said, yeah, we should talk about that album because you know, it's probably, before the blue before the blueprint came along, I would probably say it's Jay-Z's most important album because he had to come back strong because I'm gonna make no secret about it. I couldn't stand volume one. Like volume one was just, you know, in my lifetime was just and eh, just I don't know. It just never sat right with me. But Hard Knock Life was the start of my senior year of high school. And you know, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song or the album in general. And yeah. you know. That's probably his first real, you know, mainstream replayable classic. And for you, I know it's the first album that you ever bought. So take us back to when you were um when you first got that album. Okay. So most of the time when it came to any rap or hip hop music, I was not allowed to listen to it at home. So I got exposed to a lot of rap either from my cousins whether it was in the summertime or just me being over their house and my next door neighbor, her brothers and cousins. So that's how I got introduced to rap. Now, when Hard Knock Life Volume 2 was released, I actually was uh, 14. So exactly 20 years ago, I was in high school. And this was the first rap album that I had ever purchased. Now, I did hear Volume 1 prior to volume two, but volume two is what made me a Jay-Z fan. Yeah, I think that probably um, is ended up being the case for a lot of people. Because, I mean, I mean, reasonable doubt, I mean, obviously it had Can't Knock the Hustle. I mean, Streets is watching, had some good tracks. And, um, volume, and volume one was cool, but volume two hit everybody. And obviously, you know, the title track, you know, who samples Annie? You know, who at that at that particular time, you know, I mean, soul samples were popular, so it wasn't nothing for people to use soul samples, but to use something from probably one of the best known musicals ever and turn it into a anthem about the struggle. That was that that was pretty impressive. And that pretty much put Jay on the map as far as like, you know, middle America and all of that is concerned. Yes, you um you, you made two great points about this being his first mainstream successful album, as well as him actually appealing to middle middle America, like you took the words right out of my mouth. Even with the replay volume going back, at the time that the album was released, it was a year after Biggie had passed, and undisputably Biggie was the next best thing out of Brooklyn since Big Daddy Kane. So Jay actually had that opportunity to step up and to be among one of the greatest lyricist rappers from Brooklyn, New York. So he really 
I mean, who actually thinks, like you mentioned, who actually thinks to sample Annie? And that's what really catapulted him into mainstream success with Middle America. It's just, it was just a wonderful thing. And again, this album is what really made me a Jay-Z. <laughs> Before Stan was a thing, when Stan came out with it, I was definitely a Jay-Z fan, no doubt. I think what made that album so great was while Hard Knock Life, the single was like a runaway success, like it really just, you know, if, if Jay was ever to do an unsung, that would probably be the first song they actually talk about in detail. But from start to finish, you can literally listen to this album in full. If you feel like it, run it back again and not feel like, you know, you're missing any steps. For example, my favorite part of the album is there's a trend. There's the transition on. It's only on CD because when I bought it, it was on cassette. That's how you know. <laughs> you know. That's how back. That's how backwards I was. Even people were buying CDs in 1998, and your boy was still buying cassettes for his Walkman. But anyway, um, on CD there is the transition at the end of a week ago, which has another great sample, um, "Ballad for the Fallen Soldiers" by the Osley Brothers. You get Jake. You get too short. Who guests on that song talking about you know how the crack game was designed to, you know, help build up the neighborhoods and how snitches was killing it. And Ho just jumps out of nowhere at the end with you rat bastard. And then it jumps straight into um, coming to age two, the sequel, um, which honestly has featured something that's twice featured on this album. That's a rarity these days. And that is a Swiss beach track that has aged well. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, and I was a Rough Rider stand. So if you if if you would have told me that Swiss Beats had repetitive tracks for ten years, ten years ago we wouldn't been fighting. But now that I'm older, now that I can look at things with a more critical ear, yeah, he started doing the same stuff. But the but the two tracks that he had on the album, "If I Should Die with the Rangers," and um, of course, "Coming to Age the Sequel with Bleak," that you know, from from a week ago to the sequel, you get a sense of you know, Jay realizing that, you know, his partner that been snitched on him, you got, you got, you got to leave that guy alone and you got to get back to molding this young fellow who's hitting the block for you. So that's just part of the, you know, the album's, you know, charm and how it grabs you for me that, you know, some of the sequencing is perfect. Yes. Now with coming to age, the sequel that has been for the past 20 years, my favorite track from off of that album it's the first rap song besides uh, Notorious Thugs. Well, Biggie's part specifically. That's the first rap song I actually printed out the lyrics. Remember, we used to print out lyrics and memorize them. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first yeah. song that I memorized. And I used to edit myself back then because I was a quote unquote good girl. But now I don't. I say all the cuss words. But <laughs> um, just to hear the difference. And um, the way that Bleak flowed from the first coming of age, where you could tell he was definitely probably an early teen or late teen, I believe that was on Jay's first album, Reasonable Doubt, to two, two or three albums later on here, and to hear the growth in him and with them going back and forth with the raps, it was really genius. I, I think it's one of Bleak's better features out of not only him being featured on Jay-Z's albums, but also his own albums that he released. Yeah, we'll have to talk about, you know, the uh, potential 
the everlasting potential of one Malik Thurston Cox another time. But yeah, um, <laughs> definitely. I mean, yeah, just real quick. I mean, I mean, people will probably look at Bleak, you know, as being like a flop or a failure, which I don't agree with. I mean, it's just, you know, certain, certain things don't work out for certain reasons. And it's not like he ever not like he had a terrible career. But I mean, I just think he was I, I just think people putting pressure on him to be the next Jay was just a bit much. And that's just my opinion. Yes, I agree. Um, I don't look at Bleak as a failure. Like some people are like, oh, he just like rolled Jay's coattails. Why wouldn't he? If he doesn't have to really do anything or put any music out and he still was eating off of Jay-Z's bread, I'll be his yes man too. Like, I just didn't understand that. I mean, I get it. Joke's gonna fly. But I don't believe that he was a failure because he even gave us a few bops as well later on down the line. But as far as his relationship with Jay, I don't know if they're still as cool as they were, but all of those years before, I mean, I'll be his just man too. Right. Also, um, there was something I read on the Opus Mag um, from um, from the writer who's, I can't remember his name, and I mean, it's going to hurt me that I don't mention this guy's name, but it was on the Opus Mag yesterday, website yesterday, and he mentioned Paper Chase with um, Jay and Foxy, and he said he was upset that he never got a Bonnie and Clyde album for them because what people don't remember, I mean, obviously we remember because we were there, we lived it, but mm -hmm. that definitely was something that people wanted and was waiting for it to come down the pike, and it never really happened. And Paper Chase, to me, is better than Ain't No Nigga. It's better than, you know, um, Sunshine is de definitely better than Sunshine by a long shot. I mean, Sunshine might be one of the worst Jay-Z songs ever recorded. <laughs> and um, also, you know, I'll be was a bop. I mean, we gonna, we, we're not going to disrespect I'll be, but I feel like Paper Chase was really the essence of Jay and Foxy as a duo. If I could put those features in order, this is just my opinion. I would put I'll be before Paper Chase. So I would do I'll be Paper Chase, Ain't No Nigga, and then Dead Last would definitely be Sunshine. But I agree. I think that because we don't really know how long J and B actually were together. We just know how long they've been married. But I think that at that time, when him and B probably first met, Foxy was used to being the chicken, the crew, and then the whole fallout with a mill. So she kind of got pushed to the back burner and, you know, tensions flared and it became a beef. And that's why that Bonnie and Clyde type of album never materialized. And that's where we are, where we are today. Yeah, I agree with that. And I got to talk about, I mean, I don't know how we, how finally you think of this track, but if somebody had to really pin me down, put a gun to my head and say, you got to pick a favorite from Hard Knock Life. I love Reservoir Dogs with every fiber of my being. Like everybody on that song had a dope verse, even Sheik. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, I mean, I would never say it to his face because I mean, Sheik is a scary looking dude. But um, yeah, even Sheik had a hot verse on Reservoir Dogs. And I feel like Jay really, even though the Rockefeller and Rough Rider camps would eventually start beefing like three years later, um, everybody showed up on that one. That was probably the first time anybody had heard beans widespread. 
And Beans really, you know, showed his ass on that record. Yes, I'm glad that you brought that up because outside of coming to age, the sequel, Reservoir Dogs is my favorite track from the album on the strength of Beans. Like I'm from South Philly, just like Beans is, so it's a given. I'm biased. I don't care. But that was my first introduction to Beans. And I actually met his peoples a long while ago before like you know how you listen to somebody's voice and you try to picture how they look in your mind, but then when you finally see you like, oh, he's nothing like how I imagined him to look just from that feature. But even back then, I believe I may have been in 10th grade by that time when I purchased the album. But even back then, he was garnering a buzz and people that I went to school with, they were aware of who he was because they probably seen him on the street, saw him before he got a deal, knew him when he was hungry. But I was like, yo, this feature is really decent. So, you know, just, you know, that's a whole nother conversation for another day with that whole falling out with state property and them. But yeah, we got to do that one. We got to do that one ourselves. Yeah, but you're right. Like Sheik to me has always had struggle bars, even though he used to be my, he actually used to be my favorite member of the locks when I was younger. Yes, only because I thought he was cute. That's all. I was I was a girl. I was, you know, whatever. <laughs> but going back, listening to different features and things that he's done now, I think probably the best verse he probably had was on If You Think I'm Jiggy, but that's another album. But back to this Reservoir Dogs, I agree. Everybody's verse was just on point. They came in last, tied it all together. And then just when you mentioned transition, it smoothly transitioned into It's Like That. And even even the yelling of Kid Capri could not take away from how smooth it's like that was. <laughs> like Kid, like I mean, I get it. It's his thing. I mean, DJ Khaled should really pay homage to the Kid Capri because that's where it started. Right. Yeah. Um. Every. I think even you know, Jay has always had like you know between him and Ross. I don't think there are two better rappers in terms of having an ear for beats. Right. Because even, you know, even when he was hungry, even though even he even though he wasn't established, he wasn't the multi-millionaire, possibly billionaire dude married to the finest woman and best entertainer on the planet. Jay always had a vision of how he wanted to sound. And you go from, you know, even even letting Bleak have a turn on a DJ Premier beat. Like that to me signals how you know how advanced his mind was because I could easily hear Jay on the handed down intro, but he said, "Nah, I'm gonna let my little dude kill you to start to start probably the most important album of my career." That was a huge gamble, and it worked. Yeah, so like Bleak definitely was blessed to have two features on the album, and even the intro, like you mentioned, the handed down intro. Like Bleak really just did his thing on the album as a featured artist. And just like you mentioned, like production wise, everything has aged gracefully, gracefully. And not every production from the mid to late nineties aged well, but in in terms of production, this album aged very well. Even Money Cash Holes, um, Nigga What, Nigga Who, and even Can I. Can I get a like? We know that what made that most popular is because it was on the uh, Rush Hour soundtrack, and 
I'm probably in the minority here. I actually prefer the radio version over the album version because the album version was kind of like, oof, wow, that's kind of harsh. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, I think sometimes radio versions of album songs can be better because they give off the ad libs. I mean, because, I mean, the album version is Can I Get a Fuck You? Right. And then and then on the and then on the and then on the radio is can I get a what what and can I get a whoop? I mean you get I mean you give yourself an automatic built-in chant with the radio edit. So I mean it's just it's just one of those things of you know fate working out. And as far as you know originator 99, you know, nigga what nigga who, like I still think those are some of the best verses Jay has ever put together. And that was the first time, and honestly, I, I regret not being on the Timbaland as a producer trained earlier. I mean, obviously, you know, we knew he was responsible for the stuff with Missy, with Genuine, with Aaliyah, God rest her soul. Mm -hmm. But the first time I heard that beat on the album, I mean, it literally just grabbed me. And it has not let go for 20 years. And Jay and Tim have made some incredible records together, but I still think that is the matchup for that for those two. And Jay just literally just like showed off from start to finish. And even though, once again, another fallout, <laughs> another <laughs> fallout uh, with, with Jazz, um, he, 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 he let the dude who put him on in the game had that last verse. And I, and I was like, okay, I see where Jay gets it from now. Because Jazz really flexed on that last, on that last verse. Exactly. He really did. He, he ripped it. Everything about his verse was just perfect. It was the perfect uh, loose ends being tied up. And in in terms of Jay and uh, Timbaland tracks, I put Nigga What, Nigga Who, Originator 99 up against Lobster and Shrimp as far as production is concerned. Because that's my shit too. And like Tim really, I, I really hope that dude really gets his flowers. Just like I feel the same way about Teddy Riley. I feel the same. I feel that way about most late 90s, early 90s producers, even well into the 2000s and 2010s. But definitely, like Timberland definitely needs his flowers. He really does because he's been really doing his thing for 20 plus years. It's it's strange because a lot of the guys that, you know, are responsible for the hits that we came of age to, they're genuinely really private people. Like they, the producer until I would probably say Diddy, you know, and even Diddy wasn't really producing, but then again, that's another story for another time. Right now, um, so yeah, but even <laughs> though, you know, the producers, <laughs> even though producers were playing the background for most of what we know as music history before guys started hopping on saying, this is my track. This is a so-and-so production. You know, guys like Tim and Teddy were just content to let the beats rock for themselves. Like, like Teddy, like, of course, Teddy might get on, you know, as, you know, background vocals. You know, Tim will, you know, do his thing in the background, make his, you know, freaking, freaking noises and all of that. But they really did. They really never thought their chest. And I think that's probably what makes them so great is the mystique behind it, because we we can talk about, you know, Swiss being out front. You know, we can talk about. Kanye eventually being out front, just you know, all those folks mustard mustard on the beat, DJ mustard now, but Tim really just you know gave people still giving people hits mm -hmm. for close to thirty years now, and like you said, he really deserves his, his flowers and his props. 
because, like I said, nigga, what nigga who just grabbed me from like you know the very first like when those when those bass drums start kicking in, I'm like, what the fuck? And then Jay just gets on there and just starts talking about you know got a condo with nothing but condoms and. <laughs> Imagine how I stroke. See how I stroke on my last cassette. I'm like, what? I'm like, okay. I can't get with this type of shit here. I'm like, all right, now I'm on board. I, I mean, I mean, I was already sold through the first part of the album, and you know, then nigga, what nigga who just takes us to another level? I'm like, all right, I'm in there. I'm in there. I'm all in. And another in the track that's kind of slept on, even though Stevie J has turned into the ultimate sleeves ball. I mean, we can. I mean, we can talk about Stevie all day long in that regard, but he gave Hove a nice track on Ride or Die, but the part that kills me is that entire song was a mace diss. Wow. <laughs> people, never, people never picked up on that, you know, and even when I was like 17, I was like, check your own videos, you'll always be number two. And that was the same time that Mace and Puff were in the Can't Hold Me Down video wearing the number one and number two jerseys. And I was like, oh, oh. okay, all well, right. Well, I learned something new today. Like for number one, I didn't know that CBJ produced that song. And two, I didn't know that was a, a Mace diss track, but like even the production on, like like I said, again, the production mwah, on this album, it just aged so gracefully, so gracefully. And eventually we are going to have to give CBJ his flowers too, as far as production is concerned with what he did with Bad Boy, even on his album, Dave Hollister, him playing instruments and stuff like that. But it's, it sucks now that, you know, we, like you mentioned, we know him as Sleazeball. But the man is talented when it comes to music. But even just going back to the album, um, Rada Die was hot. I'm actually, you mentioned um, a week ago, I'm not really a t-shirt fan, so that's probably skip-worthy for me. Um, the only reason why Money Ain't a Thing is a skip-worthy song for me is because JB can't rap for shit, so that's just my opinion. <laughs> I love them canceling Weak in the Knees. So I'll be jamming off of the sample, but then when I hear Jermaine Dupree start rapping, I'm like, oh, here he go. He can't rap. I feel the same way about Magoo. He can't rap either. <laughs> yo, we go, yo, Magoo, Magoo bars are a special kind of struggle bars. Oh, yeah. Like, like, like they make you laugh. Like, you know, like I tell people all the time that, like, you know, like Ray J's One Wish is the most hilarious R&B song ever. Magoo has some of the hilarious, most hilarious bars in rap history. But yeah, um, Jermaine Dupree definitely, you know, I don't think he cheapens hard knock. I mean, I don't think he cheapens money ain't a thing because, I mean, it is what it is. It's a song about two rich young black dudes telling you how rich they are. I mean, it's not going to be like, you know, it's not going to be it's this can't be life. It's not going to be somehow, some way. It's not going to be my mama loves me. This is just two dudes. Fairly new to the wealth, being new money. That's really all it is to it. I mean, granted, you know, like no one's ever going to, you know, confuse Jermaine Dupree with Quincy Jones or anything like that. But he doesn't, to me, he doesn't get enough love for um, ATL taking off, you know, from a pop standpoint. Like, I mean, Southern hip hop to me has always, you know, been around. I mean, you can thank Luke for the 808 based stuff and then Outkast, you know, mm -hmm. added something totally unique and special to the mix. You had 
Eight Ball and MJG out of Memphis. You had Bun and Pimp C, God rest his soul, out in out of Port Arthur, Texas. But Jermaine Dupree really made Southern pop R&B a thing. And hopefully one day we could get in. Also, he also gave the less attractive man a chance to shoot his shot. Because the nigga has ended up with Jamie Jackson twice. I don't know how that happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe the eggplant emoji, deuces emoji, bomb emoji comes into play. But I mean, I mean, I mean, the man got Janet Jackson to fuck with him twice. I mean, that's that, that's that, that's if that's motivational to me. <laughs> but then we gotta look back on historically the men that Janet have been uh, tied to, and now you know Bobby Brown story that you covered in an earlier show. Just for us to you know see like what he pulled Janet, but it's not too far fetched because at that time they were both at the height of their careers and they were fairly attractive people. And so I, well, to some people they were, as far as Bobby Brown's concerned, I never thought he was attractive. But I mean, she had you know dealt with him back then. Jermaine Dupree doesn't seem too far off now. I'm like, oh, it makes sense. Like I know Renee was a nice looking guy. The DeBarge, I can't remember his name. You know, charged to my head, not my heart. He was nice looking, even her ex husband um, that she has just a child with, or the second child, depends on who you talk to. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's kind of like hit or miss with her. But also with that video, Money Ain't a Thing, I didn't realize how either how tall Jay was or just how short J- Jermaine Dupree was. Most rappers are short. And I think Jay Snoop and J. Cole are probably like the only three tall rappers in the game that I can think of. The, I mean, the ones that the ones that are well known because Slim Thug, you know, the dude that was on dude that was on Still Tipping. Actually, still tip yeah, that was on Still Tipping with Mike Jones and Paul Wall was literally like six seven. Wow. But okay. he's like, but he's not as well known. Lil Flip was actually tall. You remember he came to homecoming that one year. Or, no, wait a minute, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. The girl that was on his he came yeah. homecoming one year. He came to homecoming. I probably didn't go to that homecoming. That's probably why it's like fuzzy right now. Yeah, um, I, think, I'm trying, I'm, I think it was 04. I think it was 04 he came to homecoming. Okay. Yeah, but I think he was like 6'4, six, 6'5. Six, but then T.I. cut him down on like 5'3. <laughs> but yeah, get, we getting off track. But just, you know, hard knock life to us, you know, for, I mean, because we were both in high school around the same time. We were just at different points in high school. You were just starting. I was about to finish. But for those of us who were coming of age around that time, that album meant a lot to us because this was a dude who really did, you know, go the long route. I mean, he, you know, he sold drugs. You know, he opened up for, he opened up and did inter, you know, intermissions for Big Daddy Kane. You know, he was carrying Jazzo's water for a while. He was um, big. Was one of the he, he was one of the few people big trusted on a feature, which says a lot. Mm-hmm. But he really it really took him time to step into his own because by the time Hard Knock Life goes platinum, he's approaching thirty. And a lot of the rappers we know now and even back then were like in their like early twenties, like 21, 22, mm-hmm. You know, starting out with you know great success, and Jay doesn't really reach the pinnacle until you know. 30. That's why that's why probably he, you know, he even started saying 30 is the new 20 because you know success came rather late for him. And that was something a lot of us can relate to because even though we were still in high school, we were still growing, we were still developing as people. And that let us know that 
yeah, you're going to have some peaks and some valleys, but, and it's going to take you some time to get where you're getting to, but you'll appreciate the journey once you get there. Right. I can agree. I can definitely agree with that. And just thinking back to 10th grade in general, <laughs> just for me at that time, I think I had just gotten my braces off and I was really trying to come into my own in high school, really trying to find my footing in high school. I had um, actually went to a trade school. So just trying to find my place in the world at that time, I, I definitely can relate. I, this album definitely has sentimental value to me, not only because of it being the first rap album I ever purchased, but also just because, like you mentioned, it's the time of my life that I was in when it was released. Yeah, and I think that pretty, I think we pretty much ended on that note. Actually, I don't think, I mean, we probably should, I mean, because we talked about this earlier this week, and today is his birthday, so we definitely want to dedicate this um, show to the memory of the dude who really put us all in contact with each other, you know, through journalism, through college, and, you know, definitely just a good human being and a good friend. Definitely want to dedicate the show to the memory of our friend, Mike Feeney. We miss you every day, brother. Um, love you. You know, hope, you know, you're enjoying paradise on the other side. But we, I mean, obviously, you know, Tia, you know, we, we grew real close to him, you know, working through the Hornet newspaper and all of that. But, you know, just as a human being, you don't meet too many people like Mike who you can connect with, you know, professionally and, you know, as you know, on a friendship level. Absolutely. I just like when I logged into social media this morning and I was reminded that today would have been his 35th birthday. It just brought back so many emotions and, you know, moments that you wish you still could have had with him. And so most definitely he did introduce us to each other through journalism. He actually you know, believed in me as a young aspiring journalist to even, you know, go from being a contributing writer to eventually going out in a blaze of glory being the campus news editor. So I am thankful for his friendship. I am thankful for his, you know, just the impact that he has made on everyone's lives professionally as well as personally. And I am happy that I did get the opportunity tell him when he was on this side just how much I appreciated and loved him for all that he was to me. Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, I, I said it this morning. I mean, the end comes for all of us at some point, but it never really is going to sit well with me that he left us this soon. Like, I still have the Twitter DM from when he was in the hospital because I thought, because, you know, when he said he was in the hospital, I was like, all right, maybe it's just like routine checkup. And he's the night, the night of the Royal Rumble, it might have been like a week or two before he passed, the night of the Royal Rumble, he's like, you think Brock going to win it? I was like, nah, I think it's Roman's time. And we, and that was, you know, that was our connection, you know, aside from journalism, that we were both huge wrestling fans. And I just, you know, and I, and I, I can't let that go. Like, most of my DMs, for the most part, are cleared out. And that's another story for another time, probably another genre of podcast. <laughs> but that is one I probably will never, you know, even... You know, even I might eventually screenshot at one point because, you know, even up to the end, you know, he was, you know, he was friendly. He was, you know, up to date on everything. Like people, if you if you didn't know Mike Feeney and you got to know him, you couldn't help but love him and you couldn't help but, you know, be inspired by him. And 
I think we're all real, still pretty much inspired by him. I mean, you know, even in our day to day lives now, I think we cherish things a lot more because you never know when this can be taken from you. But Mike was a Jay fan, too. So it, it, I think I think it's pretty cool that we we met close to 15 years ago through Feeney. And here we are in our 30s, established adults, you know, living our best lives. And we're still doing something that, you know, is similar to what we were doing in the Hornet. And I think that to me says more about his legacy than anything else. The fact that he brought people together and could keep them together, you know, through, you know, force of his personality. So once again, his mom is Reba, his twin, Anthony, cousin Dawn, you know, if y'all ever get a chance to listen to this, Mike was loved by everybody, you know, not just, you know, not just, I mean, and we thank y'all for sharing as all as much of his 32 years with us as you could. And we greatly appreciate y'all for that. We love y'all. We think of y'all. We send y'all our prayers and that's going to do it for this edition of Groove Line. I, I think we can sign off on that note. So T, thank you for coming on. I mean, we, you know, it got kind of heavy in the end, but we had a ball. Yes, um, I was like, okay, yeah, this is definitely a time for us to, to wrap it up. For myself, getting emotional, but I appreciate you having me on, even just, you know, going on with the, the idea that I pitched this morning and for us just to chat. I mean, it was just like a conversation that we would have on Twitter every day. So again, I thank you for having me as a guest and it's a beautiful way to end the show. Rest in peace, teams. We love you. Yes, ma'am. Rest in peace, Mike. We love you, brother.